For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Greetings, you are listening to Cantus Firmus. I'm Cody Cook, and my guests today are John D'Angelo III and Ari Spivey. John was a former Marine deployed in Afghanistan, now the man behind antiwarwarvet.com. Ari is an artist behind Failed Kingdoms. You can find his singles on SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. Probably something else too, maybe YouTube? Yeah, YouTube. There you go. So now, so I've asked you two legit anarchists here today to discuss one of the most off-sided biblical passages for defending the state. So this is, you know, this is any, anytime someone mentions this passage, it's always a shorthand for hey, the state has its own role and prerogative. And it's the old, uh, the, 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 you know, the old faithful render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. Uh, so before I do that though, I want to ask, uh, what's up with you guys? Um, what do you, you know, John, I know you've been doing some podcasts recently. Ari, what you doing? Yeah. Um, well we fell kingdoms actually has a podcast now. So, um, we've, we've been working on that. Um, I think on August I, and I've been promoting it a lot, but on August 6th, we'll have, uh, Dr. Josh Rasmussen with his wife, Rachel on, on the podcast to talk about their new book. Um, when uh when heaven invades hell um and so we're just trying to get uh as many people not as many people but uh interesting people who have some form of a uh theological leaning towards what we believe to get on the podcast and just have good conversations and we also have um not right now but because i have a i have a you know we have the child we have the uh, baby on the way and brian who's the uh, other half of fell kingdoms he just had a baby so it's kind of been a little slow trying to release music and do projects and music videos and whatnot so as soon as we get a little bit more situated then we'll start you know uh, doing a lot more with uh, fell kingdoms in terms of music and even shows and we actually can't even do shows right now because of covid but um, right now that's what that's where we are we, we, we really been focusing on the fell kingdoms podcast and that's on youtube and whatnot so and what, what kind of stuff do you guys talk about with the podcast uh we talk i mean i think it's been the fourth i think we're on the fourth one i haven't released the fourth one yet because i just i just finished editing it and you know it's not just audio format but it's also video so it takes a little bit longer um we, we talk about anarchism you know we talk about uh, theology we even you know we talk about culture music um I think in the next one, we're going to be talking about why uh, our, you know, the new Disney movie Artemis Fowl is so horrible. And so, <laughs> yeah, we're going to be doing, we're going to be doing a, a movie review on that. So we just, it's, it's sort of a, we, we do everything, any, anything that comes to our mind, we'll, we'll take a crack at it on the uh, podcast. Cool. That's and cool. Now, 
Now, John, so you, you've been on a few podcasts recently. You've also been doing some Instagram lives with the anti-war war vet on Insta. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've been trying to hit the podcast circuit a little harder um, now that uh, my, my second son was born just four months ago. So things are a little bit more settled now. Um, and I, I've been on uh, Foreign Policy Focus a few times with Kyle Anzalone uh, twice pretty recently. And then uh, I just did one of the podcasts with E-Militia, which was, a, was fun. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've been working on a big project um, I'm trying to do a uh, an ebook right now, working on the retrospective of the invasion of Iraq. So I'm trying to source it all together so that we have, uh, as libertarians or as anti-war people, um, and it's nonpartisan, non-ideological. We have one single source we can go to and say, "Look, these are all the points um, to make the case that this was uh, this was a, an illegal, unjust war, and that we were we were propagandized into it." Because I think, um, you know, ultimately it ended up really changing the way that U.S. foreign policy looks. And, um, you know, precedent is everything. So I, I'd hate to see this sort of thing happen again. And we've seen inklings of it with Syria and, and uh, you know, issues have come up already to justify more, more invasions, more atrocities based on chemical weapons or whatever. Um, so I, I kind of want to have that out there as soon as possible. So once that's done... Um, I'll start getting back to writing more frequently, hopefully. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And, and I, I've done a little bit of um, writing uh, for Kindle and paperback on Amazon and stuff. So if you're have any questions about trying to figure out those kind of hoops and whatever, let me know. and I'll be glad to help you. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be my source for sure. Awesome. <laughs> well, if you guys are cool to start it, let's, let's uh, start talking about uh, render to Caesar. Yes. Cool. All right. So my plan was to go through verse by verse uh, where this passage appears in Matthew 22. Um, it's also um, in Mark 12 and Luke 20 in slightly different forms. And, and we can compare those um, when necessary, but I think Matthew 22 should be fine um, as our baseline. So we start here in verse 15 and we go all the way to verse 27. So verse 15 um, gives us the background here. So um, I assume most people are at least slightly familiar with this passage, but if you're not, it's okay. We'll jump into it. We're going to go through verse by verse. You'll kind of get what's going on. So verse 15 reads, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So him in the, in the verse is Jesus. And uh, the Pharisees um, are a group of uh, Jewish leaders who... Um, are one of the antagonists of Jesus throughout the gospel. So that's kind of the background on there. But um, so I, I've got kind of notes as, as I went through this, but if, if anybody wants to kind of comment as we go through, maybe, um, maybe I'll let you guys um, say something first as we read each verse. And then um, if there's anything I need to add to that, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it in. But so our first verse here is the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And he comments. This is such a, a an important theme in the new Testament and um, particularly about the interactions with Jesus is the sort of established religious authority and how it interacts with uh, Christianity. Um, and I think it, it is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big Bible project fan and um, they talk a lot about hyperlinks, right? So uh, the, whenever they start talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they're trying to 
to clue you in immediately. All right, we're setting the stage here for this um, established sort of hierarchical religious group and um, all of their problems that they've presented throughout the New Testament should kind of be overlaid as this event begins. Cool. I was say real quick on, on the Bible project. Uh, they're great. My daughter likes to watch the videos before she goes to bed at night. Oh, cool. The other day I was going through uh, working on my Hebrew um, and I kind of came across a word and I said, okay, I think this, and it was Rasha. And I said, I think that word means evil. And she was sitting next to me. I said, that means evil, right? She said, yeah, or wickedness. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's so cool. <laughs> Ari, any, any comments? Yeah. yeah, I would, I mean, I think the first thing that I would say, uh, the, the way that I was, you know, the, the, obviously the, the, you know, the modern and the most common way to understand uh, this particular passage is to say that, you know, Jesus is making a difference. And I, I hope I'm not getting ahead, but the, the whole point is, is that most people, when they read it, they, they will genuinely, generally think that um, Jesus is saying, all right, pay your taxes to the government and then, you know, give to, give to God what, what is his. But the way in which I um, was taught this specifically, and I, I'm glad that I, that I learned this, I had a theology professor and, um, when I was in college, and he actually understands it as a polemic against, against Rome. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm going to be coming from when, uh, in terms of my interpretation of uh, this particular passage. So it's more, it's more so of a polemic than anything else. Well, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing how that shakes out as we, as we go forward. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the, the main thing that, that, that I had kind of noted when I, when I got to this verse was um, there are some differences. So, for example, Luke doesn't specify the party that's involved. He doesn't mention the Pharisees specifically. Mark mm-hmm. actually mentions the Pharisees and the Herodians, which is kind of odd because they, they would have um, been sort of antagonistic to each other. The Herodians supported the puppet king Herod who worked under Rome's authority, and the Pharisees are more traditional. They were more patriotic. Um, and so it, it seems like odd that they would work together on something, but that does sort of underline um, how much that neither of them like Jesus was it the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Mm. One thing that though we're, we're going to have to sort of clue into, and this first verse really sets the scene, is that the goal of the people who are interacting with Jesus here are trying to trap him. And, and, and that, I mean, and that, that term that's used is, is like a hunting term in Greek. It's usually it's applied to ensnaring a bird. So I think the question they're about to ask him, um, we kind of already clued into the fact that it's, it's, it's going to be a trick question. They're, they're trying to trap him in something. And so that does sort of set um, the scene for how we should be looking at what they ask. So that leads us to verse 16. Um, the Pharisees sent their disciples to him. Uh, oh, actually, Matthew does mention the Herodians too, along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. And I only had one quick note here is that there it's obvious they're trying to butter Jesus up here. They're hoping um, that he will think that they're on his side and they just want an honest answer because they think he's very wise. Um, so they don't want him on the defensive because then he won't feel safe to speak his mind. They're trying to, um, we'll go into exactly how they're going to try to trap him. But the idea is they're, they're, they're buttering him up. We know they're trying to trap him, but they open with this real kind of, you know, um, you know, butt kissing line. 
Um, <laughs> does anybody else have anything to add on that? Nope. Uh, the Pharisees, you know, they, they, it's funny that they are so hand handed with this um, or seem to be only because we already know, you know, they just had uh, back in Matthew is it 21 there, they have the moment where the chief priests come up to Jesus and are um, questioning his authority and, um, and baptism on all this stuff with John. So it, it is interesting that they've, they've appeared so two-faced so quickly in, in this gospel. Yeah. So then we get to the question they ask here in verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So, so that's the trap. The question assumes that there is a conflict between honoring the pagan Caesar who invaded God's land and the God who truly owned the land. So the, the trick or the trap is that they're going to get him in trouble with someone. Either the people who don't like Rome are going to uh, be upset when, um, um, you know, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, we should definitely pay taxes to Caesar. Or, or on the other hand, um, you know, Caesar is not going to um, tolerate a rebel. So if he says, no, no, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, then that he's in trouble with Caesar. So one way or another, they're hoping they're going to get him here. Either the people are, are, are going to lose respect for him or he's going to end up on the wrong side of the state. Uh, any, anything else to add? Uh, that poll tax, uh, just as a, some brief context, is like a special, it's a special levy for subjects of Rome's domination. It's not like, you know, here we pay our income tax or whatever. Um, it's apart from citizens of Rome meant simply, simply for those in subjection to Rome, which I think is important for the overall story. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, one of the things that, that sort of stands out is, you know, I, I went to a, um, or, or go to still, um, a conservative uh, Bible college and seminary. And, um, you know, they're politically conservative as well and, and patriotic, but so there's kind of this complicated um, uh, way that conservative Christians try to deal with this, this topic where on the one hand they'll say render to Caesar, but on the other hand, they also support like the American revolution. Um, <laughs> so there, I think that's perhaps where the, where the, uh, the conflict actually is. Uh, are, are we any, anything to uh, add to that? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with John. Uh, I think is I think it's important to understand what exactly the text is and you know what what I understand it to be um, and this is this is just what I was this is just what I was taught is that the the, the specific text that they're referring to it was actually a tribute um, a, a form of, of a tribute um, text to show loyalty to Caesar yeah so okay so we, we move on then to verse 18. And we read, but Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? <laughs> so um, so the first thing I noted there is that despite their flattery, Jesus is perceiving the trap right away. Um, and the word hypocrite, um, which is almost the same word in Greek, hypocritai, uh, uh, actually literally referred to an actor on the stage, uh, someone who wore a mask, you know. But figuratively, it, it could be applied to anyone who pretends. So Jesus basically knows these guys are fake friends. <laughs> they're, not, um, they're not sincere with their flattery. They're not really truth seekers. 
Um, so so that's, that's the first thing. He perceives their malice and he calls them hypocrites. So he knows it's a trap. So the question is, how's he going to get out of it? Oh, John got the baby. All right. So, um, so verse 19, show me the coin used for the poll tax is what Jesus says. And they brought him a denarius. Um, okay. So the coin is going to be how he gets his, uh, is his rhetorical flourish here for dealing with this trick question. Um, and, and I was going to mention just really quickly about the coin that, that's being used. And, and this will be borne out as it goes on. Uh, well, according to Craig Keener, who wrote a um, socio-rhetorical commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he said it was related directly to pagan Roman religion and to the imperial cult in the East. Uh, the side bearing his image also included a superscription, namely Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The other side bore a feminine image um, and read Pontiff Maximus, uh, referring to the high priest of the Roman religion. And the empire actively used such coins to promote the worship of the emperor. And while Jews were allowed to honor emperors, they were expected to avoid images. So that, that's just a little background on the coin. And, and as we go on, we'll sort of see that that, that actually is borne out in the text itself. Um, any, uh, any other thoughts about that? Uh, just to speak to the divinity a little bit. I think that this, uh, I'm, I think it's really important that like today we, we've really lost that layer of um, rulers being uh, explicitly divine or possessing some sort of like um, celestial providence and i think are you, are you sure about that because i've i've seen some Trump supporters who uh, yeah yeah <laughs> it certainly it certainly hasn't gone away completely but like yeah. Yeah, to to see this um this godlike image i think is really helpful and to your point it it's sort of our signal as christians that there's a significant difference between um our earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. And this, this coin does such a good job of demonstrating that. Yeah. Well, because, because I mean, they're not wrong that there's a contradiction, right? Mm -hmm. But, but, but I guess the question is, has the, have they escaped the contradiction and is Jesus going to escape it? Um, and and that, that's, I think what we're going to get into is, as we go forward. So uh, verse 20, he said to them about the coin, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Uh, I'll have to probably read 21 here just to make, make it make sense. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. <laughs> so there's a question here that, that's never asked, um, but is always assumed. Um, when I say here, I guess I mean in the, in the interpretation of this text. Because Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So the question is, what belongs to Caesar and why does it belong to him? And, and, and also, what belongs to God and why does it belong to him? Particularly with Caesar, is it the coin that belongs to Caesar? Or is it his power because God gave it to him? So is it his coin because he made it? Or is it his power because God gave it to him? And I think that the assumption that many people make when they read this passage is that it's not about the coin, it's about the power. Um, and, and that Jesus is saying that they should respect Caesar's power because God has given Caesar 
um, this distinct realm, which is his, the things that are Caesar's, which um, is distinct from the realm of God, where the thing where that has the things that are God's. So that's just kind of the kind of a big picture thing that we can get into as, as we go, as we try to dissect this. But I think that kind of lays out the the choices that we have here as we are trying to understand this text. Um, so, so I, I cited, I, I got a, I pulled up here, R.T. France's International Greek Testament Commentary on Mark. Um, and what he had said when he was looking at the belonging to Caesar thing, he said that what belonged to Caesar in this context was primarily the monetary obligation of the poll tax. Though Jesus's words are broad enough to permit a more expansive understanding of civic responsibility as well. So he goes on to say that the second member of the pronouncement uh, and to God, the things of, of God is entirely open-ended and must be filled out by the reader's understanding of God's claim on his people. It will be that understanding which determines whether the claims of Caesar and of God come into conflict. But the way the pronouncement is formulated suggests that such conflict should be expected to be exceptional rather than normal. So France sees these two domains, one is holy, one is secular. Christians have distinct responsibilities to both, and they, he, he assumes that they will rarely come into conflict. conflict. Mm. Um, so that, that, that's France's view, and I think he represents the kind of traditional understanding of the passage, that it's not about coins, it's about Caesar's domain, um, Caesar's um, um, God-given right to rule. Now, uh, Craig Keener, who I, I don't think is like a, you know, an anarchist or libertarian or anything, at least he hasn't expressed that. Um, he reads the, 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 it differently. So he argues that while well, the emperor is the one controlling the production of the coins and they're officially his property. So I think that's a much simpler way of reading the passage. And I think it's, it's more correct. And I guess I'll say why I think it's more correct. Um, and, and you guys can break in at any point here and interrupt me, but... Mm -hmm. I think as most people who read this passage do so, they treat it as if Jesus had answered a simple, you know, why yes. <laughs> you know, like, um, um, should we pay the poll tax? Well, yeah, of course you should pay the poll tax to Caesar. That's how I think people understand Jesus to have answered. But that's actually not the case. He gave an answer that got beyond the question as it was being asked. He reframed the conversation entirely. And I think one thing that is sometimes hidden here is that when we use this kind of KJV, render unto Caesar, we lose um, a little bit of the meaning. Because render is not a word that we use very often, but in Greek, the word that's being used there means to give back. So the coin was Caesar's. He minted it, he introduced it into circulation, and he did so with the condition, a contract of those using it, that there would be a usage fee, a tax to be returned for its use. So Jesus is not saying to give to Caesar whatever Caesar asks. He's not saying that Caesar has a special domain to do what he pleases that God can't touch. It's really as simple as this. The coin belongs to Caesar. That coin belongs to Caesar. It's his. If he asks for it, give it back. How you doing, John? I'm sorry. Something about... Whenever I go into my office to record, the cats want in and my daughter invariably will at some point just swing open the door. There's something that they just want to be in this room. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing I'm doing my very best to um <laughs> to mitigate, but hey, it's uh, our, 
so, so the, the, the coin, the coin uh, problem is really interesting. I like the, the, and I've actually never heard that sort of exegesis before. I've always found that the, uh, the idea of all things being God's domain and therefore all things are his, it was sort of his cheeky way of saying like, yeah, you can give the coin to him, but let's not forget who the ultimate sort of author of life. Um, maybe that distinction is, is better illustrates kind of the point that Jesus is making that, uh, and underlies like the property rights conversation that we were having. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is what is kind of interesting about it as I revisited this passage is that I sort of always assume that, because I think sometimes the way people frame something up the first time you hear it, you assume is the right way to frame it up. Um, but really, I think people often present this as a trick question in basically the same way, <laughs> in a similar way that the Pharisees and the Herodians were, right? They, they frame it up in a certain way so that if you answer the question the way they're asking it, you, you, you lose. <laughs> and, but I think ultimately, yeah, if, if you treat it about the coin, well, you know, property, you know, the world is God's, but, you know, we also have private property that God allows us to have. And this is Caesar's private property. So if you ask for it back, give it back. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's really about the right. He's really making a point about private property and the right to contract. <laughs> um, and so he's not, I don't think he's saying then um, that Caesar or the state can lay claim to your life or go to war whenever he pleases. That's not what's being said. Well, I think there's an element of, of um, willful submission here too, right? Like when, when we think back to um, his arrest in the garden or um, to Romans 13, which is a common objection, this idea of willful submission to state authority, I think is, is an important element here because they're, they're asking under the premise that like this is the, the sword created authority that we live under that we're subjected by and go ahead and tell us how we're supposed to to live under their dominion um as you know faithful adherence to god's will and i think that that's all like wrapped up really interestingly here is it's not i don't think it's simple enough to say it's merely a matter of the coin being caesar's because that coin represents so much of what i was just talking about but i think that it does kind of it does kind of make an interesting object lesson for it. I would, I would, I would also, um, I, I just want to add, I, I don't know if you guys are aware of uh, like uh, the Old Testament scholar, John Walton or either um, Michael Heiser or uh, Ben Stanhope. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you know, if you, if you've read any of their material, you, you, you have to, you, you have to um, understand within the, within ancient Near Eastern context, one of the things that they did, one of the things that the, uh, the Israelite did was they, they regularly employed polemical, polemical speech within their writing. So if you, um, I don't, specifically in, Gen- specifically in Genesis 1, um, we, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if you look at it within, uh, within the broader ancient Near Eastern context, and I'm getting somewhere with this, but if you look at it and you look at something like the Enuma Elish or, um, or a different uh, creation narrative, what um, John Walton or th- these other um, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, scholars, they will, they will say that the thing that they're doing is that they are employing um, a lot of the writing in the Old Testament is 
clearly employed to polemicize the other to polemicize the other cultures and the other uh, the other pagan uh, nations regularly employing polemical speech um, to get their point across. And so I think this is, this, this is just, and obviously the um, New Testament authors were, were, would know this and they, and they probably understood that this is what, this is what was happening in the, you know, in their, uh, in their ancestors time. This is how they wrote. This is how they understood um, their, their, uh, their scriptures. And so I think what's happening in terms of Jesus in this particular passage I think Jesus is, he's alluding to specific speech in the Old Testament, specifically in terms of um, whose image. I think when he says whose image is on this, I think those Israel, I think those Jews in the first century would have understood that Jesus is appealing to something in the Old Testament. And I think when he says who images, whose, whose image is on this, I think the Israelites would have understood that yo i'm jesus is referring to something like exodus where it, it says that thou shalt work, worship the, the lord your god and not make any graven image of him so i think image in this particular uh in this particular context is referring to uh this image is referring to the worship of god and so i think when jesus said that i think that those is the israelites would have understood that oh okay he's talking about images so he's talking about worship so i think we just i think i think we have to look at it in terms of not only that particular context but also look at it in terms of because you know jesus always alludes to the old testament and so i think here even in terms of inscription um it's i think it's actually coded language in terms of the shema so it says um deuteronomy 6 4 6 it says Hero Lord, hero Israel, the Lord our God, um, the the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, or to be inscribed on your hearts, or to be written on your hearts. So I think what's actually going on is that when Jesus is speaking to these, um, speaking to the Israelites, he's actually asking rhetorical questions to them and saying, "Yo, when I say these words." you are going to understand that I'm alluding to specific passages and, and, and specific ways of thinking in like in context with the old Testament. And so I think that's, and even in terms of um, this inscription it's referring to the worship of God. And so this is the reason why I, this is like, this is, this is the reason why I, I, I would take the polemical under the polemical view of these particular passages, because I, I don't even really think that Jesus is referring is actually referring to. Um, but I, I, I think, I think what it is, is that the Israelites at that point, he's, he's actually, they were actually trying to get Jesus to, you know, tackle that particular um, question that we understand it to be. But I think Jesus is just literally just turning it on its head. And he's actually showing them that what's really happening is that, um, Caesar is, or Tiberius at that point, he's making a claim of godhood, of divinity, when you do this text. And that's the reason why he employs, you know, whose image or whose inscription is on this. And the Israelites would have understood, okay, he's kind of, he's probably referring to Old Testament. He's probably referring to some Old Testament passages. So they would have understood that. And so for me, 
it's, it's literally Jesus making a claim. Jesus is saying Caesar is, or Tiberius at that point is making a claim, is making an exclusive claim of divinity. Of, 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 and so, and also I would, I, I, would like to under, I would like to say that I think the inscription on the coin would most likely say, you know, something like uh, the worship, the, uh, the worship, the, uh, the worshipful son of God, Tiberius, Caesar. I think it probably would have said something like that. And so, and I, and I, I can't remember what, what scholar I, I pulled that from. I can probably look it up later. Yeah. I, I mentioned that, that Keener had, had argued that the superscription would have said uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Yes. Yeah, so and so this is the this is the reason why I, I think what Jesus is doing at the like this is what he's trying to get get out. Caesar makes a claim of Godhead, uh, uh, makes a claim of divinity. So does Yahweh. And though uh, specifically money, specifically money in that time it had a connotation of worship. And so I think getting down to the brass text of it, Jesus is clearly putting, putting up a choice um, to the Israelites. Either this is what Caesar is saying. When you make this, um, when you make this tax or when you give this tribute, you are, ex- you are explicitly telling uh, Tiberius that he is God. Or um, so if you do this, you are choosing to worship Caesar and you're not, and you are choosing to not worship Yahweh. So I think it's Jesus telling the uh, Israelites that this, that Caesar and, and Yahweh are making exclusive claims of divinity. When you give this tax, either you are giving it to Caesar and you are proclaiming Caesar's divinity or the opposite, you are, you are proclaiming Yahweh's, um, Yahweh's divinity. You can't do both. So that's the way that, I've understood it to be, um, to mean, to understand it. Uh, and just to piggyback just for a moment, uh, the Brown Driver Briggs um, Hebrew English lexicon, they actually define the image by using um, of heathen gods of painted pictures of men or an image and likeness of God's making man in his own image. So that clear distinction uh, there, I think just to your point would absolutely be something that the audience was aware of almost necessarily based on their response. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I think, I think Jesus is basically doing this. He, Jesus is doing what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. So he says, choose ye this day who you will serve. So hence whoever, you know, whoever you believe to be God is then the person you will worship. And one of the ways in which you worship is by giving tribute. And so by giving tribute. And so, if you believe Caesar to be God, then you worship him. And if you believe Yahweh to be God, then you worship him. So that's, that's basically how I understand it. I don't even think Jesus is, I don't even think Jesus actually answered exactly what the Israelites were trying to get him to answer. I think what he actually answered was this is the the way, the way in which Caesar has set up this text, this tribute is idolatrous in nature. So you choose ye this day who you will serve, Israelites. And if it's Yahweh, then you worship Yahweh. And if it's Tiberius, then you worship Tiberius and you give the tribute. The, the, the word there that you use for image is, is um, icon. And it is, yeah, primarily used to describe um, pagan deities. like for, Or, for example, the, um, the great image in Daniel 2 of um, presumably... 
uh, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Um, we also see it in First Corinthians eleven um, that man is the image and glory of God. Second uh, Corinthians four four, Christ is the image of God. Colossians one fifteen, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Revelation thirteen fifteen, uh, the image of the beast, um, which is worshipped. So, so yeah, so that gives you a little bit of background on it. But um, let me sort of pull up my passages here. So, uh, uh, the note on on polemic. Um, there's another great book that you, sh you should check out by John Currid called Against the Gods. And he the subtitle is The Polemical Theology of the Old Testament. And, and for those who aren't familiar, polemic is a um, kind of a written argument against something. And the argument that was, that's being made by a lot of these Old Testament scholars is that the Old Testament writers will sometimes use imagery or language that they're borrowing from their theological opponents, for example, you know, pagans, Babylonians, Egyptians, whatever, and they'll sort of turn it on their head, on its head. So you'll you'll see that particularly with the creation narratives. Um, you see it with uh, the way the Psalms will use the the poems about Baal, the Baal cycles, where Baal is the storm god who's described as riding on the clouds, and the psalmist uses that language and uh, turns it on its head by applying it to Yahweh and to try to suggest that Yahweh is superior to Baal. So there's the, the idea of the, the Akon or Icon, Icon used as um, uh, a comparison to these false gods. But there's also the fact that human beings are, um, I guess it would be Akon, Akons of, of God, right? Mm -hmm. So, Jesus, on one hand, is using this kind of very charged language, uh, religious language, when he refers to the image on the coin, the icon, or icon, um, because it's supposed to bring to mind idolatry. Um, but then, so that's, so that's the image of, on the coin. So the, the coin belongs to Caesar. It's got his image on it. So then the question is, well, what belongs to God? As Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So if the thing that belongs to Caesar is the thing that has his image on it, then perhaps at least one of the things that belongs to God are the things that have his image on it. And so, you know, what really Jesus, if that's, if, you know, you follow that logic, what Jesus would be saying then is Caesar does not have authority over human beings he didn't create them. They're not in his image. He can't dispose of them or kill them or whatever, or use them however he pleases. He's got his coins. He minted those, but that's what he's got. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't own you. He owns the coins. He's not God. And so, you know, Tertullian, Tertullian looking at this passage says, um, you know, that means render the image of Caesar, which is on the coin to Caesar and the image of God, which is imprinted on the person to God. You give to Caesar only money, but to God, give yourself. Augustine said, we are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering. The one who re-stamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coin as Caesar sought his coin. It's in this sense that he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. To Caesar his coins, to God your very selves. Now, in addition, though, what else, what else belongs to God 
is everything that exists <laughs> because Psalm 24, one, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Job 41, 11, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So there's a, a pretty significant contrast here. It could be, and I think that the fact is we never really ask the question, okay, well, what belongs to God? We assume what belongs to Caesar. And we assume that whatever Caesar claims to rule over belongs to him. And, and I think that is really the wrong way to understand this passage. Jesus is talking about the coin. <laughs> and I think, you know, going from there, if you want to, if you want to try to expand that out and say, well, maybe there's other things that belong to Caesar. Well, you have to co contrast that with the things that belong to God. And, and so once you've done that, there's very little that belongs to Caesar, Caesar apart from his private property that God has allowed him to have. Yeah. And the, he's certainly, I mean, um, he's certainly making some real commentary about the people who are approaching him too, because the Herod and the Pharisees both represent these very, um, to, to the author and to the reader of like early first, second century Israel, they, they would really understand the gravity that these people groups um, carried when they're coming to him, representing uh, both the, the sort of state religious relationship and um I think that there's a lot there about Christ making a commentary about their um, submission first and foremost to those powers of, of civil government or of, um, you know, religious, the, the incestuous religious state relationship and um, how quickly they've come to be like the bidders of Rome, this um, very heavy handed, uh, tyrannical power that, that just conquered Israel you know? Yeah. So we get to, we basically have one verse left here in this passage, which is hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. So they don't think he said yes. <laughs> they think he said something else entirely that they didn't expect. And they're amazed. So uh, you say something, John? Yeah, no, no, I just absolutely like that just speaks to everything we're saying here that they, he, confounded them with his answer because he's saying so very much with um, just one sentence. And uh, yeah, that's the fun part about teasing out the Bibles um, and Jesus's teachings overall. But uh, here, I think he's making so much social commentary that can still apply to us as contemporary Christians. Yeah, you can, I mean, even you can tell that specifically in the last, like you, I don't see I, was, I don't see how anyone can read the passage and then they say, okay, well, you should just it's it's it's, it's appropriate to cuz I mean, cause the way in which the Israelites came in asking it's almost as if they concurred with the it's almost as if they concurred with the question before they even asked it. So, they were expecting him, you know, cuz obviously within context there's just you know, um, either Jesus says no, and then he's going to be seen as a rebel, or if Jesus says yes, and he's going to be seen as, you know, you know, as a, as a person who, you know, who values Caesar, who, fa who values um, the emperor over, over Yahweh and, and all this, all these different type of things. So it's just like, he just pulls a, he just pulls a 180 and he just, and he says, he, he answers it a way in which he, they didn't even expect. And so it's like, yeah, so this is the reason why I, I, I think the polemical interpretation is, is so, is probably a better fit because 
they just went, they just walked away and they were just, they were just dumbfounded about it. So I think the very fact that Jesus, in terms of the polemical interpretation to say that Jesus is basically telling them that to give, that to give this particular tribute to Caesar is indeed a lapse, is, an, is indeed a lapse in your, um, in your, uh, in your worship to Yahweh and it's actually worship to um, Caesar. I think that that makes, that makes a lot more sense within the context when they just walk away dumbfounded as if like, okay, wow, I didn't expect that answer. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I, can I push back on you a little bit, Ari? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that he is saying that it's, um, it's worshiping to give the tax. I think what he's, what he's saying um, is, is kind of like what we, what we pull out of Romans 13, this idea of willful submission, but overall understanding. And I think if he were to just turn the question around and ask the Pharisees, they would say, yes, you should pay the tax because they are not the upstart revolutionaries um, <laughs> that Jesus is and represented. Um, and so I think Jesus is kind of playing both sides really cleverly by saying, yeah, you should pay the tax. You know, we don't want to start a bloody revolution against the Romans. However, let's not forget that um, there is far more that we as God-fearing men um, are called to be doing and, and that our, our direction should be, you know, towards um, advancing the, the heavenly kingdom, not, not the ones of this earth. And so if that means living, living peaceful, peaceably among this regime, then, then fine. But um, I, think he's, I don't think he's saying that it's, worshiping Caesar to pay the tax so much as he's saying they, the Pharisees represent more of a, of a worship towards Rome because they've lost sight of their, um, their godly nature or professed godly nature. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would disagree with that per se, but where, where I was coming from, if, 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 if when I, when I was talking about when Jesus asked, um, whose image is on this? Whose image is on this coin? And then he says, what inscription is on this coin? And so I think what Jesus was doing there is making allusions to particular, to a particular context in the Old Testament, specifically like Exodus 5 or even the, Shema, or even the Shema, you know, where Jesus is saying, and, and specifically in the Shema, he's saying where this will be, um, and this will be on your heart, so it will be inscribed on your heart, so it will be um, engraved on your heart. So I think what's happening there in, um, in this particular passage is that Jesus, and I think the Israelites would have understood this, and this is the, I think this is the reason why they left, um, why, why they left and they didn't say anything after. It's because Jesus, when he says, when he's alluding to these particular passages in the Old Testament, he's showing them that to um, specifically in terms of uh, Exodus where uh, honor the Lord, honor the Lord, thy God and, and not have any uh, and not make any graven images of me, of, of, of him and, and things of that nature. I think what's happening is that he's showing that within this particular context, that when you look at the coin, and when, you, and when you look at what the coin stands for, when you look at what the coin probably had engraved on it, but it probably said, 
worshipful Tiberius son, son of son of son of God or something like that. I think what Jesus is trying to what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that this particular tribute, and this is why I think it's a polemic. I don't even think Jesus was trying to say anything about whether or not you should actually give it to Caesar or not. So I think the polemic is charged towards Rome itself, where Rome or Tiberius is claim is has a claim on divinity, where he is the son of God. And if you know what the son of God is, it's actually it's not a it's not a claim of you know humanity, it's a claim of divinity. And so I think what's going on there is that Yahweh has made a claim, a, an exclusive claim of divinity, and so has Tiberius has made a claim of divinity. And so I think what Jesus is saying, okay, now this coin signifies, this coin signifies worship of Tiberius. And if you, and if not necessarily, I'm I'm not even making the case, I'm not even making an argument that Jesus is saying not, not to necessarily pay it. I just think that's not really his, I I just don't think that's his point. I think, and I, and this is where I would agree with you, John, where it's the Israelites. It's the Israelites' uh, attitude towards Rome, where it's almost a worshipful tone for Rome. And so, mm. I think what Jesus is doing is that he's saying, "You see what this coin symbolizes, and you see, and you see, you, know, you see what this coin symbolizes, which is the divinity of Tiberius, and you know that Yahweh, some, um, that Yahweh holds a um, holds um, also makes a claim of divinity." So I think within the passage, Jesus is clearly making an effort to make to force them to make a choice because obviously they're being they're being hypocritical and they're probably like they probably like Rome way too much than they should and they pro- and it probably is verging on worship and so I think what's happening here is that Jesus is put, is pitting a choice towards the Israelites either you choose to worship Rome or you choose to worship Yahweh. So I'm not even making, I'm not even making the argument that you, that Jesus is, that Jesus is saying that you shouldn't, or you should not um, pay the tax. I'm just saying that that's not really Jesus's, that's not, that's not really Jesus's point. And then I will supplement that with, like with Romans 13, where we probably should just pay, the, we probably should just pay a tax just out of sheer, just out of sheer, um, okay, we just, like out of sheer pass, passivity for for the government so i just don't think that this particular passage is even hinting at like recognizing any type of legitimacy for rome or recognizing caesar's property or anything like that i think the whole point is is that jesus is pitting is is putting a choice uh, to the israelites at that point either you worship caesar or you worship uh or you worship yahweh so that's that's what i think this particular passage is talking about so I don't know that Jesus is um, necessarily offering that choice directly. What I, cause yeah, I mean, it's probably implicit. Well, so, so in particular, he doesn't say what is the superscription. He says whose superscription is it? Mm-hmm. So I think that suggests that he's primarily concerned with who the coin belongs to. Um, so that's one. But there is a challenge that he's giving to the Jewish people because, as Jewish opponents particularly, um, because they would normally have argued that holding a coin with the image of Caesar and the, you know, those words that, that we described would have been idolatry. So whether or not Jesus thinks it was idolatry is beside the point. 
they do, and they still have the coin. <laughs> so, um, you know, he has not embarrassed himself. He's embarrassed them. They, not he, as Keener says, are carrying the offensive coin. So scruples against it cannot be their own. They have lost their ability to, to offer an objection. Now, I, I think if, if you focus on the coin and not on Caesar's alleged authority, um, I think uh, one question does emerge, which is if you didn't use Caesar's coin, would you be obligated to pay the tax? Um, and so there's another passage I think we could talk about briefly, maybe it's just a couple of verses long in Matthew 17, the uh, story with the fish and the coin in the mouth. But um, just looking at this one, um, it seems to me that to try to get, to turn it into a story about what Jesus, Jesus' opinion on taxation or the role of government or how much leeway Caesar has. Um, well, maybe that last one a little bit because he does contrast um, what's, what's Caesar's and what's God's, right? Um, but I, I think to try to say that, well, what Jesus is saying is that we should pay taxes because Caesar deserves them is not really the point. Um, I also don't know that his direct point is really that it's idolatrous to have the coin, but he is pointing out the hypocrisy of people who do think it's idolatrous to have the coin and yet they still have the coin. <laughs> um, so, 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 but for example, if, if we decided to become, you know, agorists and just trade, or, you know, if we just use Bitcoin for all of our purchases, would we then be obligated to pay taxes since we're not using Caesar's currency? Uh, is that I, a, I uh, is that a, that's a question for whoever wants okay. to answer. Go ahead, John. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I think at being a, a faithful Christian anarchist, I would say yes. And I try to live as much uh, as I possibly can as an agorist myself. But, um, you know, I, I'm not using Bitcoin for all my purchases or any of that. But uh, the How idea... Are you Glenn Beck listener? Do you have a lot of gold stockpiled somewhere? I do have some metal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's right next to my, it's right next to my 45 that I, I don't want to use on anybody. And, and also um, some, you have like vats of uh, like food that, you know, will survive. the. Not yet, but I'm working on it. Once we get settled in my next spot, I'm hoping to get a little, a little prepping in, but you know, I, I think that there is something really important about being a faithful Christian and interacting with government peaceably, right? We can't be, um, government dissidents as Christians that, you know, raise up arms against them. And I think the, the ultimate reason why is because government is, is the institution that's created by the sword, right? And so we have to therefore put our faith in God and in his, his will and his ultimate ends and trust that, um, you know, we'll be delivered and that these, things will, you know, whatever strife we face will be used for the ultimate good of um, God's kingdom on earth and, and the heavenly kingdom. Um, so I guess to answer your question directly, n yes, I think that we should still be paying our taxes um, and not because we think that they're legitimate or that they're owed or that they're used for good purposes so much as uh, because it's a statement of our submission for the ultimate glory of God. Yeah, I, I think that that's reasonable. So um, I don't know that, that this passage teaches that. So if all we had in the Bible on the subject was that passage, um, I, I don't think that the passage suggests that Caesar is owed our taxes. 
just that he's owed, just that he's owed his coin because um, it belongs to him. But if we were to look at another passage, like the, uh, the one with the, the, the story of the coin in the fish's mouth, which, which I'll, I'll read it really quickly. Um, when uh, Matthew 17, 24 through 27, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came here and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. So on this passage, we actually have a specific answer to the question of taxation. But before Jesus says to pay it, um, he says, he tells you two other things. One thing is that he notes that taxation is inherently unfair. <laughs> it almost always exempts certain people who are close to power. Uh, the second thing is um, the taxes for the temple. So this is not necessarily a Caesar, but if God is the king and Jesus is the son of God, he would be excluded from the tax. Since we become sons of God due to our relationship with Jesus, we're in the family of God and should also be excluded from taxation. Um, we're, so we're not part of this, these other kingdoms. We're under a different kingdom. And so that, that's two. Three, the reason that Jesus, so ultimately Jesus is saying, you, you actually, they aren't owed any tax from you. Um, and the whole way they do it is basically illegitimate. That being said, he, gives, he says to do it anyway. And the reason he says to do it is to avoid causing offense. So it seems to me that the answer to the question is, yes, we should pay taxes, but not because Caesar is owed them. We should do it because we are trying to avoid unnecessary offense and fight battles that are far less significant than the spiritual battles that we're actually trying to fight. Um, at least that's how I would, I would understand that as, as kind of a corollary to this other passage. So would you, would you, um, okay, let's just say you, you the vast majority, no, all of your money, that mm-hmm. all the money that you make, all your income is based, is based in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which is not, which is not necessarily a currency that, you know, the United States, got. It, there's no, there's no uh, image of Caesar written on Bitcoin. Yeah. So would you, so would you deem, so would you, would you pay taxes on, on your Bitcoin? Would I personally? Yeah. I mean, cause I don't know. I mean, I think, I think what John said, I think what John said is, is, you know, it's fine, but Let's just say if I, if the vast majority of like my income is not based off of like U.S. currency at all, mm-hmm. um, and let's just say it's just it's based off of um, socks or something like that. Okay. And I and I managed to get rich off of you know having a buttload of socks, buttload of socks. Mm-hmm. And so would I be obligated to actually like pay some form of a tax based off of my income? So if, it, the, if it doesn't, if it, if it doesn't belong to the United, to the, you know, to the, yeah. to the government. The state would say yes. In fact, they're taxing Bitcoin now. Um, <sighs> so the state would say yes. Now, I think if you're following the logic of render to Caesar, I would say, no, you're not obligated just following that logic. But I think if you it were to go to this other passage about the, the, the coin in the fish's mouth, Jesus's answer is, well, I mean, logically it doesn't belong to Caesar he's not really owed it. And the way he collects it is illegitimate and unfair, but you should probably just go ahead and do it anyway, because it removes the stumbling block. Hmm. 
Um, and so, um, you know, Keener says that it's a stumbling block because it addresses one's own rights rather than the truth of God's kingdom. Um, Alexandra Christianopoulos, I think is how you pronounce his name, who wrote um, a volume, uh, Christian Anarchism, that collects, you know, kind of goes through uh, all these Christian anarchist views and uh, figures. He, he argues that the questions like the payment of taxes are adiaphora, which means that they're indifferent in comparison to the one choice that really counts, the choice of God above Caesar. Eller, another Christian anarchist, says, let Caesar take his cut so that you can continue to ignore him. Um, so, you know, I would say that Caesar isn't owed anything. To, to take a passage like render to Caesar and say, well, this legitimizes Caesar's domain, misses the point. But the question is, should we still pay to Caesar anyway? Yeah, we probably should. Not, not because he deserves it, not because he's owed it, but because as Christians, we have more important battles to fight. Um, but, you know, at, at, the end of, at the end of the day, though, um, you know, as, as, as the charge that's leveled in Acts 17, 6 through 7 against Christians is, these are the men who are turning the world upside down, and they're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king named Jesus. And so, if Jesus is a king, then Caesar isn't. And I think that that leads us to the question, well, how should we behave towards Caesar since we're opposed to his authority and he's not our king? Um, you know, we, we, we are sons of a, of a different king, as, as Jesus says in that uh, fish passage. So, for example, you know, when we're looking at Caesar, if we're not under his authority, um, should we behave as belligerent? Should we look to overthrow him with violence? I mean, Jesus says no in John 18, 36, because his kingdom isn't an earthly one that's defended by violence. So we fight uh, our battle with spiritual weapons because it's a spiritual battle. Um, behind Caesar are these other spiritual powers, and they're the, the ones that we really um, need to be taking aim at. I think what maybe Jesus is really saying is the gospel is already offensive um, to a world under the authority of Caesar and Satan. So don't add more offense to it than that. Um, so, you know, voting, protesting, paying tax for office, whatever. Um, but, but if, but you know, don't think for a second that any of that stuff is how we bring about the kingdom of God and, and don't keep your eyes off the prize or forget what your highest allegiance is. At the end of the day, if you want to pay Caesar taxes, pay Caesar taxes, but um, don't think, don't, don't take his argument seriously that he has a domain that God can't touch. Oh, so again, I, I don't know. I, I think ultimately, I think we're all on the same page except for that one distinction. The idea of, yes, we absolutely are paying it um, with the understanding that it's not legitimate and that um, it's, it's really only to sate the thirst of the state um, and that that's unjust but necessary. But I, I don't think that it's, it's really an option. I think the idea of an, the ultimate submission to the earthly kingdom, whatever that looks like outside of, you know, like it doesn't mean that we have to, to grab a gun, to join the military, to participate in genocide, anything like that. But it does mean that uh, the, the edict set forth for us in whatever government structure that we find ourselves in, we have to obey for the sake of ultimate progress for the kingdom of God. Um, unless it directly contradicts something that, that Jesus has commanded us to do is what yes, I Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but that, that the tax is, so just to, to Ari's point, I'm sorry to interrupt you to Ari's point. Yeah. You're paying your, your 50% tax on socks or whatever it is, you know, like, because that means that we are able to live another day fighting for the ultimate good. 
yeah, would be, would be my answer and my understanding of this. And I think you can derive a little bit of that out of the Matthew 22 verse we're talking about, but I don't think um, to everybody's point, I don't think that that's necessarily the greatest point he's making, but I do think that that's definitely wrapped up in all of that is an understanding of how we are to relate to civil government. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and there's never a place in scripture where Paul or Jesus lay out what, you know, what kind of a state Christian should try to create or how we should vote or whatever. Um, and I think it's sort of because they're just assuming that we're going to be in this world where other things, you know, these other spiritual powers <laughs> are in charge. And um, at least, you know, on the political level and that we, we have to sort of bide our time. Um, now I think that that doesn't mean that there, there aren't issues or causes or concerns that, that we can't get behind um, but at the end of the day, it's not really, that's not really the battle that we need to be fighting, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, this is really, I think it's, it's easy for us to say, no, 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 you got to pay the tax and just submit because this state is uh, inconvenient and unjust, but doesn't negatively affect us. This is being said to, to, um, to Christians, early um, first century Christians who were being thrown into the Colosseum. So I, they, they understood the uh, violent and unjust nature of government far better than we do uh, from a lived experience. And, and they were still understanding it to mean um, a willful, peaceful submission is the single best way that God will um, overcome the violent, unjust spirits of this world. Yeah, well, I was say the, the people that Jesus is speaking to are are not being thrown in the Colosseum yet, but they are Jews who have lived through Roman occupation by pagans who, you know, right, right. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say them, but like sure. the people who, yeah. are but, but 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 the the immediate, yeah, immediately following, <laughs> that's definitely the case. All right, are we? Well, do, we've kind of been through the passage. Do, do we have any kind of concluding thoughts? It sounds like we're mostly in agreement, but we have some disagreements about some of these little you know issues about how, how do you uh, follow through on some of these things yeah well, i mean i have a i have a question i want to see i don't know how i don't know exactly how you guys will handle it but sure i i would i would agree that for the most part we should submit submit to you know submit to the government and you know if it tells us to go 25 miles per hour you probably shouldn't go 40 miles per hour and you, you should you should pay you should pay your taxes to you know to in order to not offend to not offend them but i, I think i think the question is and i think i think it's because it, it it'll just hit home because you know i have you know i'm i'm black but i married a i married a mexican mm -hmm. and some of her family they're they're christians but they are illegal and to like i don't i don't i don't really know how to deal with that because okay what 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 should they do in terms of and i know that i know this kind of i mean it's not a tangent but that I, I it really is something you know specifically even like either as a christian libertarian or as a christian anarchist i don't know how to quite deal with it or answer it but if we are to submit to the government. I think I actually asked you this before, Cody. I think I did. 
how, like, how exactly are those Christians who are caught up in those, in those particular situations, how are they supposed to deal with the very fact that they came here because, you know, they, they, they came here to get a better life. You know, it's a, it really is an oppressive system over there in Mexico. And, but the governing authority that they now have to submit themselves under because, you know, they are in an occupied state. How do you, how are those Christians who are in those situations, how are they supposed to deal with the government if the government is directly telling them that they are to be deported and shipped back to their home countries? Because it seems to me that like if you are to submit to your government or to submit to government in, in general, that you are, you should generally follow the laws that it, that it has. So should those Christians like self deport back just to honor the, you know, honor the, the, the demands and decrees of this particular state, or I don't get, I don't, I just don't get how to parse that through properly. If I can take a crack at it, Cody, I'm sure you have something far more insightful, but I, I would say, no, your, your family isn't obligated to uh, self-deport or go back to Mexico. I, I do think that there's a fine line between um, this and immigration, particularly like se- central South American immigration into the U.S. is, is a very new uh, and interesting challenge to this question that I think probably deserves some, some, um, some scholarship. But I would say that I, I don't think that they're obligated not to, to live here or that they can't live here because they didn't do it by the letter of the law. But I would still say that like, if they were, you know, if I showed up at the door, like, yeah, don't, don't grab a 12 gauge and, and make your stand. Um, yeah. I think if you're living peaceably amongst the nations, however that looks, um, I don't think that you, and again, you know, just to make it the um, reductio ad absurdum example, yeah, it's not to say that in, um, in a Nazi-run Germany, you're obligated to weed out the Jews from the ghettos because that's the letter of the law. I, I think that there's a, a distinction between um, active support versus submission. Like, and, and Christ's entire ministry on earth was subversive and um, challenged the preconceived notions of people and the structures of authority that, you know, we still face ultimately. But um, I, I, I don't think that they have an obligation to adhere to immigration law so much as they do to live peaceably amongst the nations and men while wherever they find themselves. And so if, if the U.S. were to devolve into some, you know, some different society than we are faced with right now, and we all fled, I don't think that we would be wrong as, you know, asylum seekers in some sense, whether legal or otherwise, to try to find a niche wherever we end up. But I, I do think that we would be obligated to, to, to play along with the system that we find ourselves in uh, as best as possible with the ultimate understanding that like this, you know, our authority or, or our subservience to the state's authority is not our goal. Like we're not living our lives to make our government happy. We're just as that, that quote from, was it Keener had said, like to, to have the, 
the state leave us alone. Like we, we want to be left to our own worship of, of Jesus and the functions we have as Christians to, to serve our call. Yeah. Cause I mean, I mean, before you uh, respond, Cody, the, 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 the reason why, the reason why I ask is because like, okay, I'll, I'll have, you know, like, obviously you have those really, you know, like those Christian anarchists who's like they their their anarchism isn't really predicate isn't really predicated on scripture, but it's like more more so predicated on like like the non-aggression principle. And so like a lot of the stuff that we're a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, like paying tax like we should probably pay taxes, we should, you know, more more or less just get out of the government's way to do, you know, to do what it wants, I guess. But then you have those Christian anarchists who will literally tell you they, they're basically like secularist anarchists and they will tell you straight up, OK, well, you don't have to pay taxes if you don't want to. Hey, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. And so but when but when I'm in these kinds of conversations, the way in which anarchists and even Christian libertarians or whatever you want to call them they'll they'll genuine they're general and i actually agree with it but i just don't know i just don't understand how to you know how to put it in how to put it in practice but we'll say well gen- generally we need to submit to you know what the government says and in order for it to leave us alone and i'm and i'll be like okay yeah i i i agree i agree but but then you'll have the, the people on the other side who are like, yo, Romans 13, it, it legitimizes, it, it legitimizes almost everything the government does. And then in terms of uh, render unto Caesar, it legitimizes government. And because of that, it, it legitimizes the, um, it legitimizes the borders that the government has and it legitimizes the authority that the government and the right that the government has to rather rather or not to uh restrict immigrant to restrict travel uh, into his borders or to it, st- stuff like that and it almost seems like like christian anarchists and christian status they what well, specifically on the right I, I guess you would call it we will for the most part come in and we'll we'll agree that like at the very at the very uh minimal at the very minimum we should do what the government tells us to do unless it obviously unless it restricts like unless it conflicts with you know something morally that jesus told us to do like you know not not murdering people and stuff like that so but it just it just sort of gets a little foggy in terms of this because i have to deal with it myself because i have family members so for me I don't, I, I don't see, I don't see a clear cut, you know, through line between what we should do, what we should do uh, generally in terms of what the government tells us to do and what we should not do. If, if you see what I'm trying to say? Yeah. And I, I, I just, um, I think that part of this too pulls into like how, how much are we animated by our interest in following scripture versus how much are we animated by our interest in like our disinterest in government in the state. And so, um, you know, I, we, we don't have to be happy about these laws or the way that we are the society that we find ourselves in. 
I just think that it's a matter of understanding the, the tangible outcomes of what that looks like, the tangible manifestations of our faith relative to the state. So uh, what I would say is that arbitrary immigration laws are illegitimate and immoral. So from a logical and moral vantage point, they should be repealed. I think that would actually be a worthy cause for Christian political activism. Um, I think, I think people have an obligation to their families to care for them. And they also have an inherent right to move and travel. But on the other hand, if one can obey a law without denying Christian imperatives or taking on a burden that they can't carry, I think they should try, but, but only because um, they should try to avoid causing unnecessary offense. So like you think about the, 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 um, the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, I think, the Gentiles were told to uh, abstain from meat from strangled animals <laughs> and not because there was anything wrong necessarily with eating meat from strangled animals, but because they didn't want to, uh, they wanted to avoid offending Jewish Christians. Right. And so I would say we're not under the law. So we're under the law of God. We're not under the laws of man. So I guess my answer would be, you know, from a logical and, and kind of moral, you know, big picture vantage point, they're not doing anything wrong, but if it's possible to avoid causing offense, um, I think you should always try it if it's, if it's a possibility. Does, does that kind of make sense? I mean, I, I just don't, I don't see how, like, like, I, I get it. I get, I get where you're saying. And I, it's like, I, I guess I agree, but okay. When, when you say it's, if it's possible to avoid offense, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure how that translates over into, you know, the real world. Okay. What, what do you do yeah. in terms of, you know, you, you feel what I'm trying to say? No, I do. So, I mean, I think there are clear examples where Christians are told to disobey the state. Um, but, and, and then I, but ultimately the reason, I mean, big picture, what we should avoid doing is um, disobeying Jesus or, or, if you're not a Christian at the very least, um, you know, you should try to follow like natural law. Like you should respect other people's, you know, rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think our immigration laws actually violate that right, those rights. And so I think, you know, from a higher level perspective, like Jesus, I think was basically saying with, with the, the, the coin in the fish's mouth, well, you're not obligated to give these guys anything. Um, you know, you are not under their kingdom. You're under a different authority. But he also says, eh, but, you know, we don't want to cause unnecessary offense. We don't want to kind of make a name for ourselves as people who are, who are always trying to be rebellious or whatever. So go ahead and pay it. And so I think what I would say is that there, there's a higher calling and a higher morality. But sometimes you, you do things basically to be polite, um, to be considerate of other people, and to avoid... Um, unnecessary conflict. And so I think that is, is kind of where Jesus sort of comes in on this. So I guess the way I would look at it, I don't think that those relatives have done anything wrong. If they had said, um, you know, the law says this and, you know, so we're going to respect that. I think that would have been a very respectable position for them to have, not because the law was inherently good, but because they, they wanted to try to be respectful. I think, I guess my, my biggest concern is they're here now and the state is going to wrongly want to prosecute them for that, persecute them for that. 
And so I, I'm mostly, I mostly be interested in, in trying to get those kinds of bogus laws repealed so that people don't have to make a choice between taking care of their family and obeying a, a, a bullshit law. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that, that, that's, you know, so that's what I would like to see change because I don't think that Jesus has given us a, a clear black and white on this. I mean, I think there are, there, are, there are these big important issues of right to travel, right to move, right to work, uh, right to take care of your family, the pursuit of happiness, which is enshrined in our constitution. And so, I mean, you could argue even from that vantage point, you know, like when Paul was um, arrested and flogged, he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You know, you can't do this. Your laws say that you can't do this. And so, I mean, if they wanted to appeal to the Constitution, for example, and say, hey, we've got a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and these immigration laws violate those rights, I think that would not be an illegitimate argument. Um, but I think the desire to not cause offense is not the highest moral imperative. I think it's something that you should try to do whenever you can. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that that makes sense. I I just and I I don't understand why you're not an anarchist because that 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 sounds exactly like how we would argue. So yeah, I guess uh, yeah. It, I, so I go back I go back and forth about complicated feelings um, on that subject. Yeah, I mean I guess that is kind of an anarchist argument. It, it, you know, what is it? L Luther had said that you know we should have the state not for Christians but for other people. Um, and, and, and on one level, that is maybe what's happening a little bit. You know, God has allowed the state to grow up to um, manage behavior of people who are not moral, um, who aren't interested in, in following moral guidelines. And so the state is this very imperfect solution that's managed by um, lesser divinities that are, are corrupt. Um, and that ultimately, um, Jesus is trying to pull people out from that, right? And he's trying to bring them into the kingdom of God instead. Um, man, John is really interesting to watch right now. I know. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Jesus has kind of preemptively defeated those powers and principalities that are connected with the state, but they're still there. And so I think the, you know, it, it's almost kind of like, you know, we, it's like, you remember when you were a kid and you would have to like visit like a friend's house and like, you know, his parents might have different rules that didn't really make sense to you. And you wouldn't have had to follow those rules when you were home, but while you're at your friend's house, you know, maybe you do to be polite, right? I think it's a little bit like that. Like we, we are kind of in this house of demons and, <laughs> and, and I think we're seeking to be polite even as we are ultimately trying to subvert what it is that is happening here. Um, and I think it's a very difficult line to walk but at the end of the day, I guess the reason why I'm not an anarchist is because I'm not necessarily in favor of anarchist activism. I'm not necessarily like, hey, we need to fight to overthrow the state. I sort of go, uh, I guess there's a place for it in God's providence, but it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's also corrupt. And we just, it's, it's like difficult to tiptoe around that. And, and, you know, but you have to, I guess, try to be respectful. Um, but if, if that, conflicts with following Jesus, then you follow Jesus every time. Well, I, I, okay. Well, I would have, I would have a question about that. So, because I, the, the way, the way, the way that I see anarchism is, you know, that, that's the, that's the ideal. And just, you know, just like 
people not being people not being enslaved obviously there's still people who are enslaved people not being enslaved is the ideal um and people are probably always going to be like there's probably going to always be some form of slavery you know through all of human history maybe so i I would i I think the the way in which i see anarchism or in in anarchist society is is that it's clear it's it's literally the, the the only thing that's the only thing that's stop like for me the only thing that stopped me from becoming an anarchist was the very fact that i thought that you know the state was just an inevitable reality that's just that's just how i understood um the state and so for me i think the the one thing that tipped me over to anarchism was the very fact that you can and i don't even think it's a i don't even think it's 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 biblically related. I just thought, okay, well, it seems like a stateless society is, is possible and all the services that the state currently provides, you know, like defense, national defense, can be provided on a, on a private level. And so that's the reason why I, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't even say that I'm, a, that I'm an activist for anarchism per se. I just say that I'm a person who just states what they believe. If you if you feel me, because I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself an activist in terms of anarchism. I'll just say, look, slavery's wrong. It shouldn't be here. It probably probably won't ever leave. But at the same at the same time, that doesn't throw away the very fact that it, you know, the ideal is to not have slavery anymore. So that's the way that's the way that I understand anarchism. Yeah, you know, I think about, I keep thinking about as you're talking, Paul's letter to Philemon. And, you know, in this letter is this, I mean, all the kind of philosophical groundwork for the overthrow of slavery, but he still doesn't go, all right, so let's get to it. <laughs> and, and, and I think Paul is recognizing that there's often very little that can be done. Um, you know, Christians are sort of stuck where they're stuck. The state is what it is. The culture is what it is. And you can live outside of that. You can provide a different model, um, but you can't, you know, you can't use the tools of the state. You can't use violence to enforce anything. So I think that the tough thing is wherever we are, wherever, you know, you, you almost have to bloom where you're planted, wherever you are um, in history and, 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 and you know, geographically, um, you have to seek to serve Christ the best you can. And I think that's why, the Bible is not very interested, the New Testament in particular, is not very interested in answering political questions because the answer is, well, you're part of a different kingdom, so you act like it. And um, as far as everybody else around you, there's not, there's only so much you can do about that. Yeah, there's, and to the idea of Christian anarchism, at least my, my view of it is that whatever I believe, I'm not, I'm not taking this line or um, sort of assuming this ideology with the hopes that I'm going to someday implement it. Uh, I mean, if I had a a button to push, maybe I would, but um, I think my understanding as particularly a Christian is that I I don't really need to use the state as a change agent one way or the other, and that I um, am going to exist in this world regardless as a Christian first. And so you know, if I have to go out and 
cast a vote. I don't know. I'm, for me, that's not valuable, but for whomever, um, you know, go ahead and do that. You can live uh, within the confines of the society you find yourself in. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I take the Matthew 22 image bearer aspect of my life extremely seriously. And so that's what I'm trying to, to really live out. It's not, and, and you know, I, it's funny, I have a constant conflict with my interest in political philosophy because I almost feel as if it's, um, it's like a hobby that isn't serving the purposes that I want to be serving, which is to, you know, to serve God's kingdom. And, but I think that it, I can help Christians understand this extremely important nuance about the, the state and faith and, and faith adherence. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean about the, the complicated feelings about being interested in politics when you, you know, don't believe in it. <laughs> um, and you don't necessarily think it's that effective, but well, um, right. Yeah. Well, do, do we want to, do we want to kind of wrap up? Do we have any kind of parting, parting shots, parting thoughts? Do you kind of feel like we sort of answered your question, Ari? I know it's, it's a tough one. I guess the problem is I don't know if there's a, a super concrete answer because Jesus kind of gives us this kind of complicated approach to it. Yeah. I think, I, I think, it, I think it's answered. I, I just, yeah, obviously, man, I just, it's just a very complicated uh, thing to navigate through. So, yeah. I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm still a little unsettled, about, you know, by the whole, by that whole situation, but well, I, th- I, think, I, think, I'm, I think I'm more, I think I'm more or less uh, okay with with the with the answers that you guys provided, so I, I really appreciate it. Okay, for us particularly too, as Christian anarchists, like whatever your whatever a, a, a an illegal immigrant is doing, uh, you know the the, Christ, the the nationalist Christian would say, well, you know they're gonna they're gonna affect the welfare state. They have bad intentions in coming here. They're gonna take our jobs or whatever. Like sure. that really isn't of interest to me. However, you know I do think that there's something to be said about like the intention of the given um the given person right so like uh, assuming your family has good intentions or are are um christians or whatever like if they're living um opposed to the state but ultimately in line with with christ i don't care and and that's i think the same thing that paul or, or jesus would have been saying is like yeah you don't have to obey the law you're you're obeying it when like the audit gets pulled. Are you on the right side of this? Are you going to end up getting executed? And is your execution going to serve like some greater purpose as a martyr or are you just like kind of being foolish? Um, which I think, you know, is something that we need to think about. Like I, I, I'm not interested in following the law because I care about the law or its authority or its legitimacy. I follow the law because I don't want to end up, you know, leaving fatherless kids or whatever. Yeah, that, that's legit. I, mean, I, I guess maybe if I were to simplify, I would say that it's um, conscience has a role here, right? I mean, I think maybe sometimes Jesus doesn't give us a hard and fast answer because a lot of times the answer, it would be hard to give one answer that would, would work for every situation. Um, but I think we need to sort of keep in mind our obligations to our family, the rights that we have, and then the question um, well, do you, you know, if you still want to try to be respectful of the state and the law, um, 
you know, how, how much does your conscience, conscience compel you to do so when you take into account all these other factors? Um, so anyway, yeah. So I, I think the role of conscience has to come in a little bit. Ari, we should do a long piece on fleshing this out. We could all work on it together. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because immigration, I think, is singularly um, challenging because of all the various factors and objections and variables. But I think ultimately, um, none of us here are interested in the law uh, and and imposing it. It's more about like what it what kind of challenges it creates for us as Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I too, I haven't really done a lot of work on this, but I want to now that we've talked about it. And I mentioned conscience. I thought about um, Romans 13, where Paul says that we should be uh, in subjection for the sake of conscience, subjection to the state for the sake of conscience. I'd be interested in, in trying to get a sense of what he might have meant by that and if there are other um, texts that could give us some indication. Um, but it, it, that, that, at the very least, suggests to me <laughs> <laughs> that um, that there is that role for uh, kind of voluntarily thinking through it and making a decision um, for yourself based on, you know, trying to trying to do what you think is the right thing in that circumstance. Um, you know, Paul does use that word too in First Corinthians ten twenty five. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. He's doing this question of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So. I'm interested in seeing where, 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 how Paul uses that word generally, and if that can inform how he might be using it in Romans 13. But, uh, well, actually, I, I like how he uses it in 1 Corinthians 10.29. Uh, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And then he goes on to say, on uh, verse 30, um, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Uh, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. So maybe that's, that's another comparison we could make. I mentioned the, the issue of the Jews, uh, Jewish Christians in Acts 15 who are dealing, have these complicated feelings about Gentiles not obeying these Jewish imperatives. And so the council in Jerusalem says, okay, um, just do a few things to make the Jewish Christians feel better, and that, that should do it. You know, we're not going to make you get circumcised. That's crazy. But, you know, there may be a few things you could do. And, and I guess that's kind of where maybe the, this comes in. It does become an issue of conscience. Yeah, yeah I think I, I think we need to uh, do a long form uh, discussion on that. All right. Well, let's plan it. Um, we don't have to do it right now, but let's let's maybe something we can be working on and, and putting some notes together. And we, we've got a, a Facebook chat going on, so we can maybe be popping things in there. And then when we're ready, we'll uh, that'll be one of the next ones we do. Yeah. I agree. Sounds awesome. great. It was awesome, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate you making the time, and it was tough to get together a little bit, but it's awesome when we can do it. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, Anarchist. <laughs>